0: Recording on the computer, and
1: do you know how to get the audio so it's like um... separate? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So I'm pretty sure that when it saves in Zoom, like you have the audio video file, and then it also saves an audio file separately.
1: Oh, that's good. Yeah. So... I didn't know
0: that. Yeah. So we should be fine. Um, okay. So. All right, so let's start. All right, welcome back to Cracks in Postmodernity. Today we have Joseph Schaefer, who I discovered on Instagram. Um,
1: Joseph, tell us about yourself. Hello, um, I'm Joseph Schaefer. I'm a political alchemist and theorist from uh, the Midwest, from Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I run an Instagram account called Zizek on a Wired Brain. And um, I'm, a, I'm a writer, poet. I do all kinds of stuff. I'm very busy.
0: So I first found Joseph when I was scrolling through Instagram and found very provocative post about the American university experience, which we mentioned in the first episode. So Joseph, tell us what has been university been like for you? And like, how have you been analyzing that experience?
1: Well, university, um, I don't want to like overstate um, because the positive is overwhelming, or the the university experience has been overwhelmingly positive. However, um, there's certain cultural trends that I noticed that are very concerning. Um, I think coming out of, you know, COVID or whatever, um, there has been an intense lead into hedonism. I think people are really leaning into this sort of hollow um, these hollow social avenues. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing now. We're seeing a lot of excess, um, excess of all characters, you know, of, uh, you know, drinking, you know, all of the usual college vices are, um, expanded tenfold. And I think it's because we live in uh, uniquely hollow times.
0: And you said in that particular post that, like, specifically with drinking like people will drink to the point of getting fucked up because like we're already fucked over because we already have like everything's empty you know yeah
1: yeah the the point of that post is that nobody says that they want to drink they always say i'm going to get fucked up and that that actually proves that um, it was never about the drinking. It's about proving to themselves that they're fucked up, which they already are. So it's just a confirmation of their damaged psyche, their damaged persona um, that takes place through consumption. And you can see this in consumption of all characters, but that's how it's most prevalent.
0: And so I should also mention so your Instagram sheject on a wired brain. So like, Let's go into Žižek a little bit, who is a fascinating character to say the least. So, like, how did your how did you first discover him? Like, how has he shaped the way you look at what's going on today and all of that?
1: Well, I think I have a kind of an unorthodox experience with Žižek because I didn't start with reading Žižek. Mm-hmm. I had actually read Hegel, and I had like a passing familiarity with Lacan. Um, I got into Lacan more after reading. Uh, Zizek, but I had already read Hegel, Freud, Marx, and so the idea that there was someone out here kind of synthesizing these concepts in such a radical way was really exciting for me, and that's how I um, really got into Zizek.
0: So Zizek is obviously writing in like a European context, but like how how do you find that his writings help to shed light on what's going on in American culture now?
1: Well, I think it's kind of um, almost sweet how Zizek doesn't understand um, the American problem. I think that you can use some of Zizek's analysis to kind of come at America, but America's a unique beast. And I think um, Zizekian tools um, are good to have in the arsenal. For instance, like he has this concept of, you know, over-agreement, over-identification um, ideologically. And I think that's, that's a powerful tool, um, that Americans can use, but to take his political analysis, like I really think it is rooted in Europe, um, in some sense, uh, at least my reading of g comes across as, um, uniquely European because America is, I don't know, we've got a lot of shit that's going on here. It's a little bit different. Um, we see, in America, an acceleration of all these European trends, Uh, they kind of hit a fever pitch here. So in order to, um, I guess, fully apply Zizekian thought to America, you actually have to take his own concept of hyper agreement and hyper agree with Zizek himself. Yeah,
0: and one of the things that we were talking about, like America's particular struggles right now, like a lot of it has to do with hysteria over COVID, vaccine stuff and you were saying like, I don't know, some of the things about your university and their
1: requirements. Can you like talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I go to the University of Nebraska at Lincoln and we have, um, we're not one of the vaccine mandated universities, I know uh, a fair fair number of them are, maybe a majority of them are, but we are not one of those states. So what they do is they have vaccines available on the school campus um, basically at any time. So you can always get vaxxed. Um, But if you can't, if you don't have your vaccination records, then what they do, or or you haven't gotten it, if you can't prove to them that you've been vaccinated, then you have to do a weekly spit test. And before you enter every building, you have to show an app. Um, The app basically has a green check mark that says access granted. Now, the problem with this app is that it's like you can open up the app store and look up the safer communities app right now, and it will have one star because it is terribly glitchy. And this is what uh, dictates whether I get to go to class, whether I get to go into a dining hall, basically like all the functions of university, getting, getting to eat and getting to learn are dictated by this app so um and it defaults to an access did not so the screen has to load to the like the green check mark of approval so if it won't load because you have because you're using the university's wi-fi which doesn't work really well or you're you know in a building where you can't really get good coverage you simply won't enter the building so um but you also kind of sense a breakdown. In the ability of the safer communities, you know, the app checkers to enforce this, because these are, you know, college students just trying to get some stuff knocked off of their tuition. If you walk right past them, they're not going to forcibly apprehend you. They simply won't do it. So there's a limit to the power that this, you know, app has over your life, but that's actually just dictated over how you're willing to exert your force against them.
0: And so, like the fact that in order to get access to the classroom, like you have to show this green check mark, and that's all contingent upon whether this glitchy app is going to work. Like, that's highly symbolic. That that's yeah, really yeah. like, what does this mean? Like, what does it mean to you?
1: Um, I think that it is. Um, I think that the sign of the green check mark is really potent in a way that I can't identify um, because I think that, uh, well, I, I study, you know, I'm in an ancient Greece class right now and I'm learning a lot about, you know, what it takes to be a citizen in ancient Greece. And I think that this has like the same components of citizenship, right? Because if you're a citizen, which means that you're like a landowner and you follow all the proper rules for, you know, being, um, and now it's the opposite. Now a citizen can't own anything, but I'll, I'll save that. Um, I'm going to finish, finish this thought. Um, you will, you get, you know, you get your grain, you get access to your courts, you get, um, you know, your children can, you know, Uh, go to university, maybe even transcend their class, although that's pretty rare. Um, And it wasn't called university, but they had similar systems. And I think that now um, it's simply another signifier of citizenship. And that to lose access to, you know, this checkmark, this symbol of citizenship, is to lose you know all the rights and freedoms associated with that you're paying the university for basically Mm
0: -hmm. yeah because like i'm so yeah i ultimately decided to get vaccinated because the circumstances of where i work is like the most reasonable decision for me but what i don't understand is the fact that we create these um these moralistic polemics where you know you have the good side and the bad side it's like where is um, like why do we have to demonize people who may make a different decision that yeah maybe we might not agree with but you know like why do we not give people the benefit of the doubt that they may have adequate reasons that again we may not understand like why is my decision now the absolute truth and that anyone else doesn't agree like we go into hysterics um and yeah
1: i was uh i was on a bike ride the other day and i was going past the state capitol and there was some sort of an um anti-vaccine protest of some sort um there and so i went around you know just talking to people um because i have that natural journalistic proclivity or whatever um and i ended up, I heard a story and I'm going to be covering the story for splice today. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the story was that there's a woman who's in um, stage five renal failure mm-hmm. and she was, so she needs, um, uh, Oh, what, what is renal that's kidney yeah. or kidney? That's kidney. Okay. Yeah. She needs a kidney transplant. Right. And she was at the, uh, at the, towards the top of the list um, to get this transplant. Um, but they called her and told her that because she was not vaccinated, she was going, her request for an organ was going to be put on hold. Mm -hmm. And so now it creates this interesting, um, well, kind of a horrifying ethic where if you do not get vaccinated, you know, you're actively confronting the possibility of death. And I think that this is kind of, um, an intense case. Um, but it kind of shows the, the, the level of commitment we're dealing with here. And I think that there are, um, and you know people are concerned about the, the long-term health effects of the vaccine or whatever. I think that would be less prevalent for me, but someone who is having kidney problems and would be getting this vaccine right before a transplant, I have no idea what it would do to you. And I don't think the, the people in the scientific community Can know for certain either what would happen um but you know this is speculation i'm not a medical professional in any way but i am an ethicist and it seems highly unethical
0: yeah i i don't know like this is such a clear sign of how the puritanical beginnings of our culture like have not worn away at all like sure we're secularizing but you can see there's such a religious fervor behind this like otherizing of people who have a different position to the point that like, you know, they're damned, we're the saved. And they're like, you know, they're like, I, I was speaking with a group of people that were really determined that like, as they said, there's no you can't reason with these people, like they're so out of their minds, you know, and it's like, This idea that we're not, like when you disagree with someone, we're not talking about fellow human beings who, yeah, again, we may not be on the same page, but we can have a conversation. We can consider, like, what's your reasoning? What's your logic? The fact that we don't even share this same human nature now, like, it's super Manichaean, you know? Yeah,
1: and this Puritanism, I will add, um, shares nothing in common with the ethic of Christianity. Uh, that of mercy, forgiveness, and understanding. Um, it doesn't, that's why Puritans were really bad theologians. Um, but um, I guess, you know, I'm revealing a bit of a Protestant character here. Um, but I really think that like the the Christian ethos should be that of um, mercy. And I don't see any mercy today. Um, and that's why I think the only the only type of mercy we see is probably um, is probably used as a political cudgel. Yeah. I think that's that's the only dominant mode of mercy is, for instance, being like, "Oh, I'm going to let people out of prison or whatever um, to reveal my true virtue and my understanding of the human condition." When that's not uh, that's not their focus. Never has been. Yeah,
0: it's not a true interest in the well-being of the other. It's more like my performance of, you know, my virtuousness, my my ethical, you know.
1: Yeah, it all well, it all comes back to performance. Um, people forget that they're not acting.
0: Yeah, but like what I wonder though is if yeah we're becoming more secular you know, and like, at least on the surface, why is it that this fervor, this real belief that some of us are saved and others are condemned, like, why is this so strong? Like, why has it not worn off? That I, like, I can't wrap my mind around.
1: I don't have a, I don't have a good answer for that.
0: Yeah, it is mysterious. but, hmm. But I think, like, so with the performance thing, one of the things that, like, I think about a lot is the, um, the kind of camp aesthetic. Like, it's something that I talk about on here a lot. That, you know, camp's whole ethos is that of critiquing the emptiness, the hollowness of culture and society by being intentionally hollow. So it's like you turn everything into a performance for the sake of pointing out that like all these people who claim to be so moral, so upright, like are really just performing. And I think it's like, it's a very effective critique because instead of just pointing the finger and being like, oh, you're so empty. This is like so meaningless and vapid. You, you use the, um, the approach of the person you're critiquing to kind of like flip it on its head and be like, this is what you're doing. Do you see now how empty it is? you know
1: it's usually jackie and hyper agreement It's to take something and to you know make it agree with it more than the ideology itself allows for um you see something that you're um, opposed to and when you see something that you're opposed to you say this you like uh, you you agree with it in some way um in a way that's more than the initial statement Uh, I think it's that for aesthetics, although I'm not really well-read on aesthetics.
0: Yeah, and I think that's, like, that is the whole point, though, of camp, is that you're playing up the aesthetics. You're creating this, this, like, super decadent aesthetic that, again, like, morally is hollow. But at least you're claiming, you're not claiming that it's something that it's not. Like, you know that it's hollow but at least you acknowledge the truth of it. Whereas so much of these performances of moral virtuousness really lack any substance, but
1: purport to be something greater, you know? Yeah, and now we have not only the decadence of, you know, actual decadence, uh, like richness. Yeah. Um, you have the decadence of images, signs, performance, um, and that's, uh, that's really what, where America cuts itself out from Europe is, um, you know, people say that we're the richest country in the world, and that may be um, economically true, um, but we're also the uh, the richest in terms of, uh, of, of signs of the proliferation of images.
0: Mm. And I think, like, that was extremely evident during the Trump era, because, I mean, many people have said this, that, like, trump is the first camp president and i don't know like at first when he said he was running for president i thought it was a joke but i like i had to think back to the days when he was on apprentice or when he hosted apprentice because like i was i don't know in middle school or starting high school then and i i have to say like i was obsessed like i was so fascinated by this guy's persona because it's like it's so larger than life that it's ridiculous and like he says these things that are really outlandish and you know that they're outlandish and that's what makes him so entertaining. It's like, he's this um, amplified kind of mirror reflection of our culture. Um, And you can't help but be fascinated and stare, but then, yeah. So I don't know when I, once he actually became president, it's like, okay, morally, a lot of these things that he says are atrocious, but When you look at it from an aesthetic or a performative point of view, it's like, wow, he's really, he's doing something right now. He's really saying something. He's holding up a mirror to the culture. But what I can understand is that, like the people who actually take what he says seriously and get scandalized, like, don't really see that, wait, this is actually us as a culture. Like we are are part of the culture that has produced Trump.
1: Yeah, the far more um, stark condemnation is that we're also a part of the culture that created Joe Biden. Um, Yeah, this this is this is where it gets um really really uh, I don't know fearful, it's fearful times Um, because the same security theater, um, the same uh, I guess um, what they're Homogeneity, yeah. Mm-hmm. The the official messages coming out of the White House, the images, the speeches, everything is completely homogenized. Um, and so now we're facing out of the proliferation of like uh, difference, uh, multicultural, um, not in the sense of like multiculturalism, but mm-hmm. like a, a, a non-unified culture. Um, yeah we're seeing the rise once again of uh, monoculture, of unitary culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really, uh, I think it's creating uh, now a dialectical position between the two, that either you have a proliferation or a homogenization. And I think more or less the Democratic Party has become one of homogenization and the Republican Party has become one of the uh, uh, of uh, multiplicity of difference, um, which is ironic given both of their messaging on issues of, you know, immigration or whatever. But um, I, I think that in terms of images, there's a very strict divide there. Mm. Um, and you see these old, you know, Tea Party Republicans who are still around, who are still kind of pushing You know this outdated um, mode but that's not the direction the party's headed in i would argue
0: why do you say that the republican party is more of the like diverse multicultural party because like i get Uh, what you're saying about the monoculture of the left but why do you say that about republicans
1: um because i think that they have within their base um many many cultural differences uh, many class differences. They've kind of, uh, they have an incredibly undisciplined party. Um, and I think out of uh, a lack of centralized discipline, you get these these kinds of uh, interesting scenarios where, you know, Trump is telling Ted Cruz that his dad killed Kennedy. And you have, like, all of these, uh, you have, like, Turning Point USA, um, which is a uh, kind of, distancing itself now from the Republican Party. Um, like, now they're uh, handing out pins that say, um, you know, there's three boxes, and one of them says, like, Democrat, Republican, and neither of those are checked. And then in all caps, it says WOKE, and then they have a check for that. Yeah. Um, there's kind of a there's a, a third positionist character of the Republican Party that's gaining popularity. Some people call it populist. Some people call it fascist. Um, I have no interest in giving it a name, uh, but I think that that's where um, a proliferation of difference will occur. Now, that's not to say that it's actually good or something to be sided with, or that their policies will be beneficial to the people. That's not my claim at all. I'm simply saying that we will see a proliferation of culture and we will see like images being produced more and with more variety. Were um, they to take some power? That's yeah. not actually a good reason to support them. So if you're listening to this and you're like going to going to splice it and be like, "Oh, this is proof that he's telling me to vote for the Republican yeah. Party," you just be stupid. You're not listening.
0: No, that's not what's happening. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean with the monoculture. It's very clear that for most mainstream neoliberals, Democrats, that this uh, talk of multiculturalism, diversity, yeah, like it's performative, very surface level. But in reality, it's this push to make all kinds of people kind of fit this very bourgeois, again, neoliberal mold, which first of all, like, is that even in the best interests of people, especially minorities, but also, no. well, obviously, not. <laughs> but why um, what I what I'm trying to understand is like, why are so many people um, so naive as to think that this is um, like they really do care about minorities about, um, you know, why? I think
1: they- I think it's not. Um, I think very few people are true believers, although they exist um, very loud. Yeah, they make a lot they of Yes, they do. Um but I think I think far more often the situation is such that it seems as though there's no alternative because you have the Democratic Party saying, you know, we have this, you know, bourgeois mode of like multiculturalism. And then the um, the Republican Party is Almost uh, like openly antagonistic to your peaceable existence, um, and have been for some time historically, since the Reagan administration. Um, so, what then? What's your alternative? If you and you believe that it's your civic duty to vote, and that it's very important that you do. Mm. I don't think there's an easy answer there.
0: No, not really. It's just it's baffling to me that so many people are, um, I mean, I hear you're saying that it's like, okay, there are a lot of people who see through it. I think a lot of it depends on like, what environment you're in, like what part of the country you're in. Because from what I see, at least like being on the East Coast and being involved in certain institutions, like, vast majority of people really buy into this. Um, and when you question and say, okay, but like, is this truly their intention? It's like knee-jerk reaction to say, like, how dare you question, like, how dare you think that they don't have the best interest in mind of the people that they're claiming to advocate for. Um, so like where you are, what, what do you see? Like, what's the kind of culture that you're seeing?
1: Um, well, the kind of culture I see twofold. So first I was, I was born in the birthplace of Malcolm X and that same, um, that he, he didn't end up living there for very long. His family moved away, but there's a lot of um, associations in that town dedicated to preserving his legacy and so on. Um, but you can see that um, that kind of ethnic separation, um, it's very different from like uh, Baldwin's view. I know on the last podcast you talked about Baldwin, your admiration for Baldwin. Um, And I think the view is different um, because Baldwin lived in New York, right? I think a lot of this is geographic. Baldwin lived in New York, eventually moved to France. But when Baldwin lived in New York, he kind of got um, this broad picture of the melting pot as like flawed as it was. And um, as antagonistic to him as it was like personally Um, there really was, um, no sense of like ethnic separation, ethnic identity, like you kind of, you're kind of all jumbled in, um, together and you lived next door to, um, someone who was a different race of you, most likely. Um, and I think on along racialized lines out here, it's very different because we have, we still have very strong, um, ethnic enclaves. Mm -hmm. Um, cities are still divided, um racially segregation omaha nebraska is the most segregated city in the united states so um that's kind of um uh, i guess a a major difference
0: yeah because i mean so baldwin grew up in harlem like towards the end of the harlem renaissance when things were like not conditions were not so great in that neighborhood but as you said like because he's in Manhattan and had a lot of interaction with people of other backgrounds. Like he, I think it was his second grade teacher was like, I think a, a kind of waspy Anglo woman. And when the father, his father found out that he was going to this teacher for like, you know, extra help outside of school. The father freaked out and was like, we don't trust white people. And he's like, but my teacher loves me. Why are you, you know? And then like, he went to high school at a private, jewish high school and pretty secular but still was was very aware of the prejudice and like yeah segregation within the city but because he had interaction with other people like really shaped the way he understood like himself but also american culture that like there are nuances here it's not just you know there's one side or another you know yeah but but then i wonder like so being in different the fact that america is so big that there are so many different subcultures within this entire country different narratives that we ascribe to like is there a possibility of unity of a shared narrative at this point or like i don't know like this is what i
1: think about a lot when i see all this division so i i put it um in like a Lacanian category. I think that the American American common cultural identity can only be established through an other. Um, I think that this is also prevalent in other countries, but I think it's most prevalent in the United States because it's so disjointed and so large and so geographically and culturally and economically diverse. So you saw kind of um, the rollout of monoculture, American monoculture um, and homogenization and unity, things of that nature. Uh, After 9-11, during World War II, these were all wars against the other. And I think that there is an attempt to make COVID the same thing. I think it has, has in some sense worked Um, that COVID is now the other and that we are all uh, fighting this disease, but this effort to uh, kind of construct that narrative has been severely harmed by um, vaccine and mask uh, discourse because this has created a new proliferation of differences, a new um, entrenchment of positions, so on down the line. But you saw towards the beginning of the pandemic before solutions were really offered and everyone was, you know, rather terrified that there was a sense of we were all in this together, um, but kind of in a doomed way, like you're, you're, you're on the Titanic and, uh, you're, you're looking around at the people around you. Um, but that is, um, that is a sense of unity. Um, Mm. but I don't, what is this the is this the um next other being doomed um i think it's possible we're an empire in decline um but i'm not i'm not exactly certain
0: yeah because this whole i I, it's this manichaean sense of like there are these two opposing forces
1: that are like or is it a hegelian sense
0: is it i mean they kind of go together in a way i mean the dialect yeah yes so then w- what's it gonna take to like is there gonna be some uh, uprising at some point like does one force have to defeat the other because like i mean first of all if we don't believe that hegel was right or if we're not manichaeans then like it doesn't have to be this way there can be some it does right
1: though i mean why. i'm a hegelian i think it i think okay it so tell, us,
0: tell me why does it what what's what's it gonna have to how's it gonna have to play out then
1: if we're Hegelians, um, I see two options now. Um, there will be um, either intense unification under basically the banner of neoliberalism and monoculture, and we will try to um, colonize the world and we will fail miserably. Oh, wow. Um, that's one of the outcomes or the other outcome is such deep-rooted divisions that um, that there will be some kind of civil war even if it's not given that name Um, and we'll see kind of a brazilification of our politics um, where it kind of takes on more of a street fight kind of character Uh why are you a hegelian though because i think he's right why (laughs) um i think um you know i i like to say that um in some sort of platonist sense that i was born a hegelian and i'll die a hegelian and there's nothing i can do about it so if born this way scratches the itch. if you want a fuller answer i can give you one but yeah so
0: i guess gaga was right we're born one way or another I yeah. don't know, because they-
1: One way or another, dialectically.
0: Yes, dialectically. I don't know. I can't, I think, yeah, it's um, plausible to construe history, existence this way. But like, I feel like I have too much evidence to indicate that some kind of reconciliation is possible. Maybe not forever. There is
1: Reconciliation. It just happens to occur through opposition. That's what you're taking issue with.
0: Yeah. Okay. Fair. I don't know if the opposition, like, I do think there's an alternative, but I do think we have a choice. Like, I think some people are just going to approach it through this opposition, but I do think there's like a possibility of something else.
1: And you believe in free will. Christ, you're in bad shape.
0: I know. <laughs> <It's> terrible. <laughs> Um, free will is—I mean—it's terrifying. But do we not? You say we don't have free will.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You say we don't have free will. Yeah. Because.
1: I uh, because I take a determinist position that all of our um, all of our choices are kind of pre-combined. Um, that everything we do is predetermined in some sense um, if not uh, by, by us or by the powers that be then, then by God.
0: Okay. Cause I could get with the idea that like, okay, there's a kind of societal determinism that like our choices are set for us by the powers that be right now, there would be major corporations, government, social media, But on a more fundamental level, like I could be liberated from that. I can be, um, I can achieve some kind of enlightenment and see through it.
1: I think liberation from those powers are still entirely possible. And that if liberation from those powers were to happen, that it would have already been, you know, constructed, even that would be predetermined, but then, okay. So we would, there is a possibility to be liberated from those forces. Absolutely. Um, And that's something that I would not only support, but, you know, give my life towards it just so happens that I also think that my proclivity to give my life towards that cause something that was written into my bones before my birth.
0: So then if we're talking on the level of like God or the ultimate, um,
1: the world geist.
0: The world geist. Is um is there a difference between like having a destiny that's written for me that like I have the free will to choose to assent to or, or reject versus like everything that I choose is already written?
1: Well, like, I, I, I believe that you're um yeah your idea of wanting to reject or ascent to destiny is something that was predestined even your proclivity to want that um, is something that's predestined
0: so hell is predestined for some people
1: um i'm not a calvinist Um, i believe that hell kind of uh, behaves in an interesting way as um, a, a test I don't believe that it's like a test of your your actions on earth Mm -hmm. um but i think it it's a it's a show of your deviation from your faith that you get sent to hell
0: okay interesting
1: so basically if you don't trust the plan enough you get sent to the underworld okay uh so that capacity to trust that so you could so you could um you could mark that as dissent um and i I suppose you could like make that that choice okay um to 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 go to hell um that that if that's your proclivity um but i but i don't think that you per se would be the only person that sends you to hell okay a lot of people would be coming with you based on you know social yeah. media big corporations da, 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 down the line okay so if we bring... because you can't freely make the decision to dissent from god's will and the vast majority of people that do are aided by you know lots of evil and wicked powers human and non
0: so if there is a god and god is merciful then we're not totally screwed
1: no and i believe god is merciful yes
0: okay, so then we're, we're okay it's not totally
1: no i'm not a doomer at all okay despite the beanie i'm not a doomer
0: (laughs) that's comforting so if we bring this back to universities before we wrap up um if this is the state of things in the world today then how can one make the most out of the university experience
1: what would you say i would say that you need to be you need to be living good um i think that a lot of people in college put a very high emphasis on doing things that they would have previously been disallowed for doing, and then finding out that there was a reason they were disallowed from doing it in the first place and learning the hard way. And if that's how you have to go about things, I understand, I'm sympathetic to it, Um, but I think that to get the most out of the college experience, what you wanna do is you want to like get some fresh air walk into a lecture that's not yours. Like learn something that's yeah. outside of your field of study. Talk to strangers. Like you really, there's a lot. Um, when you put upwards of 25,000 people who are your age and are among the smartest in your state in one place to eat, learn, think, and like behave together, cohabitate, to not take advantage of that and to sit in your room is sickening to me. I couldn't do it.
0: Mm. So give an example. Some people
1: can, but it's not my it's not my cup of tea.
0: So what's something you have done that like give like give an example of something you've done to like kind of break that
1: trend? Well, I I I'm kind of have a natural proclivity for talking to strangers. So every time I'm on the elevator, I'm like, hey, what, what's going on with you today? And they're like, oh my God, this kid's fucking weird. Right. Yeah. But but it really, it really does break this parasociality. Like they may just want to watch TikToks on their phone, but I don't actually care about what they desire because I know what's good for them.
0: Interesting. I wonder what would happen if someone did that in New York. That's...
1: Yeah, it's a little bit different out here.
0: Yeah. I don't now I want to try it though. Now I want to see what's going to happen. Hopefully I won't get hurt in the process but
1: see you also have to have kind of a will to power about it like, like if someone tries to hurt you you know you have to be prepared to hurt back
0: oh god we're getting now all right oh yeah <laughs> i knew it would go there okay so there might be some hope in the end especially if you go outside of the box break the script um and actually look for something
1: more. Yeah, than- and don't and don't just talk to like, you know, people you want to be friends with, people you think are cool, whatever. Because yeah. like this is something very important that people need to know is that like you should be talking to everybody. And when I say everybody, I mean everybody. You need to be talking to the trees. You need to be talking to yourself. You need to be talking to you know. Uh, yeah, we have, have like yeah, we have a um, we have someone who's kind of called like the campus crazy lady, right? Mm-hmm. Because she'll stand up and preach about like how Obama was a lesbian and all these things. <laughs> okay. well, you have to talk you. to her. You have to like you really have to check all of the all of the boxes. You have to really kind of put yourself in danger, and that danger will be an animating force for the rest of your day. It's better than any cup of coffee on the market.
0: Yeah, and that's expensive so there we have it um there is hope but yeah you got to take risks as always
1: yeah don't wear your seatbelt.
0: no please don't
1: turn the airbags off live life
0: unless you're in a real car um
1: no even when you're in a. Real even car, then fine all right don't well, wear a condom grow up well, face the consequences of your actions
0: natural law well <laughs> divine command theory divine command theory there we go so i'm gonna thank joseph for joining cracks and pomo and i hope that you've been sufficiently scandalized goodbye
1: yeah thanks okay